Psalms is what I've titled the, the message here. Psalm 5 is another psalm of David in which he desperately is seeking for God's help in prayer. And yet, and yet we're not certain of the occasion. So many of these psalms were not certain of the occasion. And I, I think God orchestrated it this way so that there would be application to a whole host of situations that we face in, in life. In relationship to uh, our struggles in life, our struggles with interpersonal relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's something here for everything that we face. Well, uh, we have the superscription, the, the title here, to the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. So it's directed to what we might call the, uh, the senior worship leader, uh, the chief musician. And David specifically calls this psalm to be accompanied with flutes. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, there you go, Anita. Has your name written all over it here? That's right. So, uh, yeah, very specific there. Uh, note as far as the, uh, the slide there, uh, the theme, as I say, is a prayer for guidance. And then uh, I break it down this way. The first three verses, David approaches God in the morning. Uh, verses 4 through 8, a contrast between the wicked and the godly. Uh, description and destiny of the wicked and description and destiny of the righteous. So that's just a general outline of uh, the chapter. Let's get into it. Uh, Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Right out of the blocks, the very first thing in the day we have presented here is David coming to the Lord in prayer and specifically asking God to give ear to his prayer and to consider his meditation. Now, to give ear is to attend to carefully uh, what someone is saying. So he's asking God, please pay attention uh, to my prayer. He's uh, depending on God. That's why he's looking to God. And uh, this was really his first priority, as we will see. The very first thing he is doing is looking to God. He recognizes he needs God's help. That's a great place to begin your day, by the way, when you're facing all kinds of Life and people pressures, look to God for help. Sometimes we forget to do that. We're struggling and we're trying to make, we may look to God first. Uh, It is interesting that David asked God to take into consideration his meditation, his thoughts. Um, Let my meditation be acceptable, as he says in in Psalm 19. Uh, So as he's working through this, uh, even his thoughts, uh, he's asking uh, for, for God to consider uh, his meditation. However, some translate meditation as uh, groaning, uh, New American Standard, or sighing, the Holman Christian uh, Study Bible. Uh, and that's interesting because, you know, lots of times in intensive prayer, there's, there's some groaning. There's almost like a groaning prayer session. And I think we may have that here. In the New Testament, we have this uh, assurance, as we find in Romans 8, 26, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. And we have weaknesses when it comes to prayer. And what is it? Well, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Uh, I think that's true. Sometimes we know we should be praying about this, but exactly how? Uh, we have weaknesses. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Isn't that interesting? Groanings, which cannot be uttered. There's a spiritual reality here that we, we don't really quite understand. 
I think we maybe experience the Spirit's ministry in terms of this intercession, in terms of the groaning. Uh, but sometimes uh, there's just kind of like a spiritual groaning, and we don't even understand everything. But he does, and he makes intercession. Well, David is asking God not only to respond to his words, but really also to the ethos of, of his struggle. And it's interesting how God looks what we are going through. I think back here in Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. God saw this. And I heard their cry. They've been crying out because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. God knows what his people are going through. And he cares. So David continues, verse 2, Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. Now the Hebrew method of emphasizing something is often through what we call parallelism. There's, uh, Hebrew po- poetry is parallelism. Uh, we, we do it you know, in terms of sound, in terms of rhyme. Uh, in Hebrew, And the, the, the Jews tended to do it in, in terms of parallel thought. Uh, and uh, we have uh, the same idea really repeated three times here. Uh, note this in close succession. Give ear, consider, give heed. This reflects earnest, urgent, and sincere prayer that is totally God-focused in orientation. David is very focused on God. Uh, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my, my cry. Sometimes, you know... Uh, we can pray without being focused. Have you ever done that? It's like, what am I even praying about? <laughs> uh, we need to consciously focus on God. In teaching us how to pray, how did Jesus teach us to pray? The very first point of emphasis, focus on God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I mean, this is, uh, we begin with the proper focus. This is where effective prayer begins. It's so simple, and yet it's easy to overlook and not really consciously focus on God as we should. I think it's easy just to kind of go through the motions. You know, I have a lot of people I pray for. I pray for you. I pray for my family. Actually, I pray for my family, and then I pray for you. <laughs> not that it matters what order I prayed in, Right. But I pray for missionaries, and I pray for, you know, world issues. Uh, so I've got these categories. But I find sometimes, uh, you know, as you're pray- it's easy to just kind of, I'm jumping through the hoops here. Uh, it's easy to, to do that and almost not really properly be focused, as I should be always. Well, we've all heard or perhaps inadvertently ourselves have began a prayer by saying, Lord, we play. Instead of pray, it's easy to get tongue twisters in there, isn't it? Uh, yeah, stumble over. But we don't want to pl- uh, play. <clears throat> we want to honor God in our, in our prayers. We want to be focused on him properly. I see David doing this, very passionately focused on God here. And he's making a major point of that in these first three verses here. In crying out to God, he recognizes his sovereign authority as king. Uh, David was king or was soon to be king. And yet he recognizes that his king ultimately is God. God is king over him. The king, or would-be king, he says, my king and my God. God was his king. And that's a good reminder too. It's always good to remind ourselves and to acknowledge even to our God 
that he is our sovereign ruler and that we recognize this. He has absolute authority over us. That's where David's coming from. It is to him, David said, for to you I will pray because of who he is, his king and his God. He says, to you I will pray. So David was uh, praying to the one who's in charge over him and is sovereign. Verse 3, my voice you shall hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Note the double emphasis on morning here. Uh, in verse 3. For this reason, Psalm 5 has been called a morning psalm. It's good to begin our day by focusing on God front and center. First and foremost, I know for many of you, you probably begin praying before you roll out of bed, don't you? I, I, know, I know I do. Uh, try to begin first in prayer, even before I get out of bed. And... Uh, David says here, he's going to, in the morning, uh, direct his prayer to the Lord. The Lord would hear his voice. And in the morning, he would direct his prayer to God. It's a privilege to pray. Uh, You know, if you received a call from a famous dignitary uh, who wanted to meet with you, I have no idea why they want to meet with you, but let's suppose they do. Uh, You would count it an honor. I mean, unless it's some nefarious type person. But uh, you would count it an honor, and it would take priority. You'd say, oh, yeah, I can make that happen in my schedule. Uh, I'm honored that you would want to meet with me. How about meeting with God Almighty? God Almighty. Uh, We often emphasize to new Christians that as a believer, they now have entered into a personal relationship with God. Uniquely so. I mean, everybody has a personal relationship with God. The, the, the lost also have a personal relationship with God. It's just that they're separated from God. <laughs> That's the, the, where they're at. But we now have a saving relationship with God. And you know what is key to all healthy relationships? You know what it is? It's communication. Communication. You don't communicate with somebody, uh, there's something a little wrong. I remember somebody told me one time, he said, well, you know, I'm on this side of the church and this other person's on the other side of the church and, and that's just the way it is. It's like, I said, I don't get this. That's not healthy. There's something wrong somewhere in the mix there. Well, this is how it is uh, with God. Uh, we have a relationship with God where we communicate. He communicates with us through the Word. I mean, this is the living Word. It's living, moving And uh, you want God to speak to you? Just open up the Bible. Pray. Ask God to speak. He'll speak. Uh, He speaks to us through the Word, and then we speak to Him in prayer. Uh, We have a a communication relationship. And it's amazing. To honor God as the first priority of the day sets the tone for the entire day. I don't know this, but I've read about Hudson Taylor, who is a very busy man. He was a missionary to China. And he was just, you know, as the mission grew and he was so busy, uh, his days were just filled with all kinds of activity, which, which it tends to be as the ministry grows sometimes. So he would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning so that he would have quiet time uh, to spend with the Lord, uh, to commune uh, with the Lord for a few hours before his busy schedule would begin. Uh, situations like that are extremely convicting because if I get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to be worthless the rest of the day. (laughs) But the point is, it should be a priority, right? We should meet with God, and it should be a a priority as a way of life. Uh, 
Uh, Jesus, we see in Mark 1.35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out, departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, we don't know how often he did this, and I don't know how often Hudson Taylor did it either. You know, I, I think we can get locked in almost to a, in a legalistic frame of mind here. But uh, there are times, uh, and I think this in David's life might not have been, uh, every day was probably different. But sometimes he's going through a real crisis. There was a real emphasis on meeting God here early in the morning. And uh, sometimes we will have special burdens and uh, something is pressing. Maybe we'll be up at 2 in the morning and have a, uh, an all-night session. You know, I've had sessions, I don't know if it was all night, but some, you know, lots of things praying through, uh, through the night pretty much sometimes. But the point here is David emphasized seeking God in the morning as making this the first priority of his day. I think the double emphasis on morning is clear in verse 3. The word direct here means to order or to arrange. David comes to God with very specific praying in mind. I mean, this word direct is like when you would uh, put things in order. Like it was used of the showbread and how it was put out in order. Uh, Those kinds of things. So the idea here is he's not just praying haphazardly or randomly, but very intentional in an orderly way. Uh, David has very specific business that he's dealing with before the Lord at this point. Now, there are all kinds of prayers, and the Bible says we are to pray without ceasing. I mean, I don't, you know, you have your quiet time where you're, you're more focused on certain things, but during the day, I mean, you're constantly shooting a prayer up here for this or for that or the other thing. Uh, but in view here, I think D- David is dealing with a specific situation, as we will move through the chapter, we will see. And for David, this was a special prayer session with very specific issues in mind that he is uh, directing to the Lord, very specifically, as we will see. Well, David came to the Lord in the morning, and thereby, I think, he received the, the joy and the strength that he needed as he was facing the day. Having prayed, what's he say there? Verse This, this strong emphasis, the first three verses on prayer, he says... Uh, I I will direct it to you, and then at the end of verse 3, and I will look up. I will look up. Having prayed, he looked expectantly to God to work. God will lift up your chin, in effect, as you look to him. I will look up. Verse 4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Here David begins marking out a stark contrast between the wicked and the godly. He noted that God is a holy God who has no pleasure in wickedness. Wicked is the idea of being morally wrong and and one who is opposed to God's law. And he says, uh, furthermore, evil will not dwell with God. God being holy can have no fellowship with evil. Dwell is more literally sojourn, uh, meaning a temporary stay. Uh, God doesn't take in evildoers for the night, so to speak. They're not welcome. Uh, This is a verse that I often use, by the way, in sharing the gospel, uh, emphasizing uh, that with sin on our record, there can be no saving relationship with God. He can't can't have sin dwell with him. Uh, God won't allow us into heaven with even one sin on our record. It was one sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. 
Uh, it was, it'll be one sin that'll keep us out of heaven. Uh, we, we need a full solution for all of the sin problem. I mean, otherwise we can't dwell with God. Evil will not dwell with him. Somehow our identification with evil has to be dealt with. And of course, we as believers know it has been dealt with in full by Jesus at the cross. That's why we call him our Savior. Jesus is the answer, and he's the full answer. When we by faith accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are instantly and forever cleansed from all sin. That's our position. Now, in our walk, we get our feet dirty, but our position never changes. God sees us forever through the blood of, of his Son. I, I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses. I have a lot of them, but Hebrews ten fourteen, By one offering, that's the cross. By one offering, he, note he, he's done this. By one offering, he has perfected forever. Man, I love that. You can't be any better than perfected. You can't have any longer than forever. Uh, by one offering, he has perfected forever. And then it's being worked out in our lives, those who are being sanctified. No longer are God's people identified as sinners. That's not the emphasis of the New Testament, is it? No, we were. We were. We're all sinners, saved by grace. That's where we came from. But what are we now? Oh boy, we need some education here. <laughs> what are we? Are we sinners? We're saints. That's the emphasis of the New Testament. Don't be bashful about it. Saints. St. Greg here. Yeah, he's admitting it. <laughs> by grace. Uh, we're all saints by grace as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is why we call uh, it the gospel of grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. He has perfected us forever. And now because of, of Jesus, we have access to God through Jesus, our great high priest. We've been cleansed by his blood. And now through his life and intercession, we have relationship and access to God and we'll live with him forever. William McDonald says, Believers have an inside track to the throne of grace. And we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace. It is a throne of grace. That's why we can come. He continues, Not so the ungodly. They don't have an inside track. God cannot be tolerantly pleased with any form of wickedness. That's a great point. You say, well, I think God can, you know. No, 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 he can't. You cannot have a relationship with God unless you are cleansed from all of your sin. Um, positionally, as, as a disobedient child of God, you can certainly be involved in, in sin till you get right. But uh, I'm talking about our position there. Note here, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all the workers of iniquity. Boy, he's getting strong here now, isn't he? He gets very specific. The boastful shall not stand before God. I mean, they're all full of themselves. They don't have an audience with God. They don't have a prayer. Saving faith is a humbling reality. The only way we can approach God is in humbling ourselves. You see, saving faith is really a humbling reality. You know, we know that verse, the just shall live by faith, right? You know that verse. It's found in Habakkuk 2, 4. Yeah. What's the, what's the rest of the verse say? 
Well, it says, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. Seems to me, faith is a humbling reality. The proud, they're not there. And then David makes a a very strong statement, saying that God hates all workers of iniquity. Iniquity, in general, uh, means wrongdoing. Uh, Now, there's an interesting tension in the Scriptures. On the one hand, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. On the one hand, God demonstrated His love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, demonstrating His love while we were still sinners. Uh, That is so true. Yet, on the other hand, God takes it very personal, the sinner's rebellion against Him. He hates the person in that role. Uh, He hates all that they stand for. His love has made provision for them to be reconciled, but in rebellion, they stand really in the category of being hated. Uh, This is to say, uh, in their sin, they are identified with what God hates. And the wrath of God, the Bible says, abides on them. That's a bad place to be where the wrath of God abides on a person. Unless they move out from underneath that wrath, uh, they're going to die there. Psalm 711 says God is angry with the wicked every day. You say, well, he's just kind of passive. No, he's not. He's, he's not happy. Uh, we often say, and I too have said, that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Properly understood, I think this is true, but it really needs qualified. You see, you really can't separate the sinner from his sin. Because the sinner is totally identified with sin, which God hates. If God hates sin, and the sinner is identified with sin, then he also hates the sinner. Uh, This is from gotquestions.org. Sin cannot be separated from the sinner except by the forgiveness available in Christ alone. God hates lying, yes, but lying always involves a person, a liar who chooses to lie. God cannot judge the lie without also judging the liar. Romans 5.10 says that prior to salvation, we were the enemies of God. Wow, just think about that. Enemies of God. Uh, We had a hostile relationship with Him. How terrible to be in the position of enemy of God. That, in effect, I think is what David is saying here. That's, That's where they are. Uh, The good news is God invites His enemies to repent and be reconciled, to enter into a whole new relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Spurgeon said many good things. Uh, This is another one. Uh, Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. Uh, Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, They're not on good terms with God. Well, I think David goes on to kind of uh, further explain himself here. He enlarges on what he means by God hating uh, the workers of iniquity in in verse 6. Notice what he says. Verse 6, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. On the wrong side of God, here's what's going to happen. He's going to destroy those who speak falsehood. And then he says again, very strongly, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This assumes, I think, these people will not repent. If they persist in their state of rebellion, God will destroy those who speak falsehood. 
these are chronic liars, and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. And David, at this point, was really having a problem with these liars. I mean, he's having a special session with God over this. He again then emphasizes the hatred of the Lord for these people. There's no way around it. You say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says. You know, you have the language, uh, comparative language in different places, and you do, uh, you know, but it's pretty straightforward. The Lord abhors, that is, he detests or hates passionately the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. These are killers. They're bloodthirsty, murderously deceitful. They're trying to take out David in any way that they can. They don't care about his life at all. They're bloodthirsty, deceitful men. David affirms twice, once in verse 5 and then again in verse 6, that God hates them. We kind of wince at that a little bit, but that's what he says. You say, well, David was just flat wrong. Well, I think there's a, like I say, there's tensions here that maybe we can't completely figure out. But God will have nothing to do with them. They are not welcome with him, verse 4. He hates them, verse 5 and 6. This is, this is some really strong language. There's no question about that. But in contrast, but is a contrast word, verse 7, but as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In the fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. In contrast to these rebels, David says, I'm going to be among the true worshipers. I will come before the Lord in worship, David says. And note he says, he will come in the multitude of your mercy. This is no holier than thou. David recognizes that he too needs mercy. Mercy is actually the Hebrew word hesed, meaning God's loyal covenant love or, or his steadfast love. And it is because of God's faithfulness that David can come, that we can come. Uh, we are not perfectly faithful, but God is. And David recognizes this reality. David here contrasts himself as a true worshiper of God, in effect, with those who are wicked evildoers. It seems to be pretty hardened uh, evil, wicked doers. Uh, note uh, this uh, statement from uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, the Hebrew word for bow down, worship, signifies prostrating oneself, a posture that re represents the proper inner attitude toward God in worship. The wicked are arrogant. A worshiper is humble before God. So he's drawing a contrast here. Now, a little footnote here. Uh, some have tried to argue that since David here referred to the temple, uh, that he could not have written this psalm. Uh, because you understand, when was the temple built? After his time, right? His son Solomon built the temple. So if he's talking about the temple, he can't be the author of the psalm, right? Well, here, here's a good explanation. A lot of the commentaries bring out something. Bible Knowledge Commentary says it as well as anybody. It's been argued that because verse 7 mentions the temple which Solomon built, David could not have written the psalm. But the Hebrew word uh, used here for temple is also used of the tabernacle. So that's point number one. Furthermore, the word house in Psalm 5-7 can refer to uh, the tabernacle as well as the temple. So, uh, and they use some references there to, to show that. So, yeah, um, wouldn't get too hung up on that. Well, not only does David recognize the need for God's mercy, verse 7, but he also desires 
God to guide him in regard to his enemies. Which is the key idea in verses 8 through 12. You know when we really need guidance? Uh, We need guidance when it comes to enemies. How am I going to handle this? Uh, And so he says, verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. You know, when dealing with enemies, it's very easy to get off track. Why is that? Because we still have the flesh. Uh, we, uh, the most natural thing in the world is to fight the flesh with flesh. You got evil people doing evil things, and, and you, yeah, you might want to deal with them in a way that's maybe not upright. Uh, we need prayer. David looked to the Lord to lead him in this situation, to lead him in the right way, in your righteousness, lead him in the right way because of his enemies. He said, make your way straight before my face. In effect, David was praying for God to make his way clear. Praying for wisdom. uh, He would walk in righteousness, in the right way before God. Uh, A great prayer, I think, is to pray for clarity. I often pray this for myself and for others. Pray for, Lord, make it clear. We want to do right, but we need God's help. And, you know, I think we have a promise to that end, right? James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, do what? Ask of God. Ask in faith, and he'll give it. And wisdom is really handling it in a, in a godly way, responding to whatever it is we need wisdom with, to, to respond in a godly way. Verse 9, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. He comes back to these evildoers. Uh, their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. He's really getting to the, the rub here as far as what he's dealing with. Whoever David was dealing with, they, they were bad news. I mean, there was some real serious lying going on, falsehood. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Verse 6, he's already said they are those who speak falsehood and they are deceitful. Here he's building on that, saying there is no faithfulness in their mouth. I mean, these are total liars that he's dealing with. You can't believe a word they're saying. And that can be really hurtful. Uh, the phrase, their throat is an open tomb, is a way of saying that everything that comes out of their mouth is rotten. It's decaying. It's putrid. By the way, Paul borrowed from this verse in his 14-point indictment of sinful humanity in Romans 3. Uh, note Romans 3.13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. <laughs> Borrowing from David here. Well, notice at the end there, he says, they flatter with their tongue. Flattery is a very evil thing. Uh, Flattery, you see, on the surface sounds really good. But it's deceitful because the people, whatever they're saying, they don't mean it. They don't really mean what they say. They're pretend friends who are really your enemies. They butter you up. They warm you up so that the knife will go in easier. <clears throat> They're out to take you down. There are things, a few things more hurtful and harmful uh, to a person than deceitful flattery. Uh, Spurgeon said, Always beware of people who flatter you, and especially when they tell you that they do not flatter you. <laughs> uh, well, David acutely felt, it seems to me, these people had pretended to be his loyal friends. 
And uh, we'll get to this a little in a little bit more in, in the next verse here. But uh, he acutely felt the sting of the of the wicked words of the lying flatterer, who had said all kinds of nice buttery things to him, but now they are turning on him and trying to stab him in the back. And he cried out to God about it. You know, that's a good place to take it. Somebody's doing this to you. Take it to God. He knows, and he's he's able to deal with it. And so he says, verse 10, Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Uh, This is called an imprecatory prayer, where David calls on God to harshly judge his enemies. Now, some have come down kind of hard on David because of these kinds of imprecatory prayers. Uh, You know, and you kind of understand, right? Jesus said to uh, turn the other cheek, to pray for your enemies, to love them. Uh, he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. However, we should note that David, in keeping with his prayer for the Lord to lead him, as we noted in verse 8, uh, I think is not wanting to deal with this in the flesh, but rather is appealing to God to redress the wrongs that are being perpetrated against him. You know, it's one thing to take matters into your own hands. It's quite another to ask God to deal with it, commensurate uh, with the evil being perpetrated, uh, which is really what David is doing. And when you back up just a little bit and see the big picture of what's happening here, it was really incredibly evil uh, what is going on here. Now, it is proper to commit a situation to the Lord uh, when one is being mistreated and sinfully abused. Uh, The Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. That's not our role. Uh, Give that over to God. Let God take care of it. Uh, That's right and proper. And note that David very clearly says that their ultimate issue is, quote, they have rebelled against you. That's interesting. It's not just about David. They're mistreating David, but their real issue is God. That's what he says. In taking on David, uh, God's anointed, they were really taking on God. You see, God had made a covenant with David, what we call the Davidic covenant, which involved the Messiah. To try and take out David was, in effect, to try and wipe out God's plan of salvation. It doesn't get any more serious than that. This was extremely wicked. And the prayer for God to judge it was therefore appropriate. Of course, it's always appropriate to pray for repentance. Uh, God desires this. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not willing as you perish, but also come to repentance. Uh, It's always appropriate to pray for repentance. Uh, God says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What David is saying seems to assume that these people are hardened in their rebellion. To the point they won't repent, and therefore he calls for their judgment. Well, David specifically calls them to fall by their own counsels. He prays that their evil schemes would boomerang on them. In the Old Testament, wicked Haman experienced this kind of justice. I mean, he was hung on the very same gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And so it boomeranged. Well, David prayed for this very same type of thing in relationship to the counsel of Ahithophel. 
You know, when he was on the run from Absalom, we don't know the occasion, but maybe that's what he's got in mind here. We don't know that, but maybe. You see, previously, Ahithophel had been a trusted counselor. I mean, it was as if the Lord was speaking through Ahithophel. I mean, it was, it was very strong. David trusted him. He's close advisor. This is, you know, somebody you're working in close, close partnership. But then he defected. And he followed Absalom. He's a type of Judas, if you would compare the scriptures. But here in 2 Samuel 15, 31, someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Well, note here in verse 10, he says, Let them fall by their own counsels. That certainly would have fit uh, with Ahithophel. Again, not saying that is the occasion, but it would fit. Uh, Here in Psalm 510, David, in effect, says, Give them what they deserve according to their own wicked plots. The New Testament emphasis is to pray for God's grace to intervene, knowing that in the end, if they don't repent, they will get what they deserve, which ultimately is hell. ESV Study Bible As a note, uh, these prayers describe the judgment that must eventually fall on those who harden themselves to persecute the godly because to harm the godly is to attack God. But in contrast, he prayed, another but, but let all those those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of requests for joy in this verse. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them shout for joy. Let those who love your name be joyful. A lot of joy in this verse. He prays for those who trust in the Lord and those who love him to be filled with joy because God is defending them. Note that, because you defend them, verse 11. It's wonderful when you know God is taking care of you. God is protecting God is defending. And then he concludes the psalm with this affirmation, verse 12. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. The word shield here is is the idea of a large shield. David is confident that the Lord will bless the righteous. He will favor them with his protection as he surrounds them with a shield. The picture is that of, of God shielding the godly who trust in him. David Gazik says, this is the greatest of all blessing, the favor of God. Knowing that God looks on us with favor and pleasure is the greatest knowledge in the world. This is our standing in grace. You know, so often we see David at the outset of a psalm, uh, the tone is one of desperation. And then he pours out his heart in prayer to God, and he ends up with a spirit of confidence and joy. Psalm 5 is indicative of that pattern. I think we see the same emphasis in the New Testament. Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Pray, pour out your heart to God. Bring it to God, he says. And then he says, And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. David experienced this. The godly handle life with prayer which is another way of saying the godly handle life with God in view. We pray. We look to Him. This is how we cope. 
And in doing so, we experience supernatural peace. The peace that comes from God that relates to our experience that surpasses all understanding. I think it surpasses understanding because it's supernatural. It's a reality of the Holy Spirit as we, as we come to God and we have a session like this with God and pour it out to God. He then fills us with his peace. And so we say with David, let all who put their trust in the Lord shout for joy because God is our defender. He ever surrounds us with his shield of protection. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer.